If you're a dog owner, safety and welfare for your pet are of the utmost concern. But there are so many so-called experts out there that many of us don't know where to turn to get the expert advice that we need. Welcome to Taming the Wild in Your Dog with noted dog expert and author Brian Bailey. In this program, we give you the tips you need to connect with your best friend with the most practical advice. Now, here's your host, Brian Bailey. Welcome, everyone, to Taming the Wild in Your Dog. Today, we have in store for you a subject that's a very serious subject, but it's one that needs to be addressed. In the last couple of weeks, I've had clients who have lost their dogs. I've even had a client who lost her husband. And, of course, I followed up listening to her story with, I'm really sorry to hear that. And the response from all three of these people was, it happens. Granted, it does happen. That's a fact of life. You may not want to address it. You may think that you're immortal, but let me give you a little bit of news. It does happen. You die and dogs die. So that being said, we need to think about that and really think about what happens when your dog dies or when you die. Because there's three scenarios. Either your dog dies before you do, or you die before your dog does, or both of you die at the same time. Now, scenario number three, problem solved. (laughs) Not such an issue at that point there. Uh, You're both gone, so therefore, it's not going to be an issue. But we definitely need to address what happens, what happens if you die first or if your dog dies. So let's go with with the first one, uh, or actually the second one. If your dog dies before you do, what happens then? Well, a couple things. Have you thought about what you're going to do with your dog's body? What are you going to do? So many people don't. It's a last minute decision. They didn't realize that their dog was dying. Their dog dies by an accident or there's a the sudden discovery. I've had this happen with a few of my dogs or they're fine. Then all of a sudden one day they're not fine. And then you find out from the veterinarian that they're going to die within a couple of weeks because they have a very large tumor in their body. And that's the one thing about dogs. I, I find it very endearing, except at that moment there, they suffer in silence. They really do. So you're not always aware of the fact that there's a problem with your dog. So I can come across you quickly. I come upon you very quick. As I, I've had this happen. I had a dog of mine that I took into the vet and said, hey, he's not eating. He doesn't drink very much. And he used to have a lot of get up and go, but I guess that got up and went because the boy just wants to lay around all the time. 20 minutes later, it was a death sentence. Uh, the x-rays, ultrasound, revealed this gigantic mass surrounding his heart and his lungs. So now I was faced with, what do I do now? What do I do? Well, the inevitable occurred, and the dog did die. So I had to decide, now what do you do with the body? Because you'll usually be asked that. What would you like us to do? How would you like us to dispose of the body? Well, I chose to cremate my dog. And that's what I've done with most of my dogs is I had them cremated. Uh, it cost about two to $300 depending upon the company that you go with. But now we have their urns. We have them still with us. And they're always with you in your heart and they're always with you in your mind. But we have the body in the form of ashes. And it, I, I think it's a, a good viable choice to think about. 
if you're going to bury your dog, a lot of people want to bury their dog on their property. I encourage you to check out the laws regarding that in your particular state. Uh, doing my own research on that, I was absolutely amazed, absolutely amazed about the laws surrounding burying your dog on your property. Uh, across the board, it's literally, you need two feet deep, you need three feet of soil. Now, I was kind of doing the math on that. I'm going, okay, if I took out two feet of dirt, where do I get the extra foot of soil? But you have to have three feet of soil. You have to, it has to be two feet deep. The area in which you bury your dog also has to be 100 feet from the property line. And I'm thinking, 100 feet from the property line, that's my whole neighborhood where I live. <laughs> It's the whole neighborhood. Uh, it also has to be 300 feet from your nearest neighbor. Uh, they, they'll probably be happy about that, honestly, in case something happens and the three feet of dirt is blown away or washed away. Uh, it has to be within 72 hours of the death, 72 hours. And it cannot be less than 300 feet from a water source. Now, I didn't say if, if that was the family pool. I think they were alluding to it's the pond or a well, or any other water source, a creek or a river. So again, I encourage you that if you think about burying your dog in your backyard, make sure you look at the laws pertaining that, because those laws were actually put there to protect the soil, protect the water in which we drink. Um, and another thing to think about, think about what you're putting into the ground. Now again, dogs die. If you had your dog euthanized, then know this, in its body is a very concentrated amount of anesthetic agent, typically phenobarbital. And that can exist in your dog's body for up to a year. Think about that, for up to a year, which means if you didn't put that extra layer of soil on and pack it down really good, possibly put stones on there and maybe some lime inside of it, if your other dog, if you have one surviving, if it digs up your dog, then just having that soil in its mouth or any part of the dog's decomposing body, and now you could be making a second grave. So I can actually kill other animals, raccoons who dig in into the grave, any other animal that digs into that grave, it can kill them. And that's something to think about because a lot of people don't. Well, I hadn't really <laughs> thought about it until you said something. Yeah. And we've buried dogs before. Yes, we have. And, for, and looking back on it, we immediately asked ourselves, was it three feet deep or did yeah. we have a foot of soil? Was it 100 feet from the property line, 300 feet from our nearest neighbor? Was it within 72 hours? It definitely was. And is it, was it 300 feet from a water source? Yeah, they, I didn't know these exist. But again, that's why we have the radio show, to make sure that you know things that you probably weren't even thinking about. But the biggest thing that hit me was how long the phenobarbital, the thing that sends your dog over the rainbow bridge in a very peaceful and painless way, that agent stays with the dog's body for an incredibly long period of time. And that needs to really be thought about because dogs do dig. They do. And I have buried a few dogs myself. I buried some uh, uh, when I was young and find out later, usually a couple of days later, go back to visit the grave and find out it's empty. 
uh, the animal was dug up and it became someone's food. So again, uh, those dogs fortunately were not anesthetized. They were not um, euthanized. They're using sort of chemical. So therefore it was, it just maybe, Hey, that's almost a good thing. Kind of like donating your organs <laughs> in a way I'm going to donate my body. So therefore now maybe another animal will live. So speaking of that, there's another option. And this is an option that has really become, I think, very viable at this day and time. There, apparently, there is a lack of sample tissue to be used at veterinary schools, veterinary research facilities. They are asking, if your dog dies of cancer, please think about donating your dog's body to science. Hey, I am all for that. Yeah, yeah I, I never a, thought about that either. I had a dog die two years ago from cancer, and had I known that, that would have been my absolute go-to for that. Yeah. And I had no idea. This, uh, again, is why you have to stay on top of the stuff and why we do our research and just have to dig into it. But that's a viable choice. And I wonder how many vet hospitals know that that choice is available and also know that's actually needed. Because this is relatively new, and this has come out by a couple of major uh, veterinary institutes that are studying cancer in dogs, and they can also use it to study cancer in humans. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, again, the mammalian br uh, brain and the, the body, the blood flow, a lot of similarities there, and you can definitely pick up uh, some nice research from that and maybe find out an answer to down that road towards solving cancer as a whole. So again, to me, that now that I know that exists, that will probably be the option that I will pick for my dogs. I don't know about you, Kara, and the rats. The rats are immortal. <laughs> All righty then. So, uh, <laughs> if you think the same thing, give Kara a call. You can reach her. We're all going to stick together. <laughs> yeah, stick together in your same little crazy I, little cloud. I do have a question. So, say a say, uh, dog passes away and you want to go with that third option and give it to science. Where, who do you contact? The veterinary hospital, or you can contact three institutes. Those would be Cornell School of Veterinary Medicine, uh, UC Davis, University of California Davis School of Veterinary Medicine, and also, hey, big shout out for where our daughter goes to school, Penn, Penn Vet, Penn Vet School, University of Pennsylvania. So all of those are, are some of the leading uh, research institutes for dogs, and they would be glad to take and, and direct you further. Because sometimes they don't want the entire body. Right, right. Unfortunately, sometimes there's not an entire body. They just want the tissue surrounding the cancer, and sometimes they do. So again, when you con first of all, my advice would be, Ask your veterinarian about this. Maybe they're on top of it. I just have never heard a client of mine ever say they donated their dog to science. So therefore, it just cannot be that prevalent. Either that or it's a choice that people just don't want to make. However, uh, that being said, ask your veterinarian. If your veterinarian does not know, then reach out to one of those three veterinary schools. And they should be able to provide you with the answer and direct you to that. I also put a couple of links on our website, tamingthewild.com. Just go to the radio page, and in one of the links I have there, list the behavioral institutes I just talked about. So, again, it should have their contacts. Just look them up, and you should be able to 
get this thing done because it's an option I, I definitely want to think about. Yeah, absolutely. Especially if they die of cancer. God forbid they do, but you, you hope not. It's such a sad time. So it's nice to turn it around and do some good. It is. It is. You need a little bit of a little bit of ray of sunshine during right. that moment there because you're so dark. And no one wants to think about, you know, and there is another option. I didn't talk about it because not, not a lot of people who are really, really close to their pets choose it. And it is the option of, and I owned a vet hospital for many years. And the option was, we will take care of your dog. Uh, because we had people who could not afford cremations. They did not have land. They lived in an apartment. They lived in a high rise. They didn't have the ability to bury their dog on their property. Back in the days in which I owned a veterinary hospital, there was none of this, I need your dog to do research. So it became disposed. And that means, unfortunately, you're in a pile. You, you're, it's a group. It's a group cremation is what it is. And there's no individual ashes for you and your dog. Uh, so therefore, that is an option always available to you. If, if none of the other options work out for you, you can definitely do that. Okay. I have a question. Okay, go ahead. If you choose cremation for your dog, how do you know for sure you have your dog's ashes? Is there like some kind of governing body or something like that that oversees how this works? How many times have you read in the news in which that wasn't the case with human ashes and they were carted off to jail because it's against the law? And it's also against the law to give you back ashes that do not belong to you. You, you paid for a service. They entered into a contractual agreement. I will cremate your dog and I promise to return to you your dog's remains in this pre-selected, paid for container or in just a bag if you want to scatter the ashes. A lot of people do that. So I don't know about that. That is a good question. I don't know if there's any oversight whatsoever. There would have to be. You know? Yeah. Uh, or you could hire CSI. <laughs> Maybe they could pluck through that and find out. Uh, I will tell you this much. And not to be morbid, I'm just being factual here. Welcome to Taming the Wild and Your Dog. We're a factual show. We're no BS. So let me just throw this straight to you. There was one time in which our facility did uh, utilize the services of a couple of different cremation companies to help with our clients' dogs who had passed away. And in one case, it was a Shih Tzu who passed away. When the remains came back, they're not always completely pulverized. They're not, not like a fine powder like you dip your hand into a bag of flour. There will sometimes be chunks, bones, bone fragments. Well, in this particular dog's remains was undeniably, without a doubt, a femur bone. And it did not belong Push it soon. Wow. I so hope that was, that was a really long time ago. That was a really long time. And I'm not going to say all old because then I'll be dating myself here. But uh, it was. It was long enough time to where I don't think we need to worry about that anymore. But again, fraud is always out there. There are always dishonest people in this world. And therefore, I don't, outside of that, I really don't know. And you have to go through your veterinarian to have your dog cremated. Is that right? You go Yes. Through that channel. Okay. Yes. Now, of course, you can always do what's called self-euthanasia. I mean, you can do it yourself. And some people do that. They do. A lot of old farmers, a lot of people who live out in the middle of where I come from, from Alaska, yeah. the, the first veterinarian or the first choice they have in that is 700 miles over rough terrain. Yeah. No. 
these guys are very adept and families are very adept at peacefully and quickly euthanizing their animals. Mm -hmm. But typically, you do want to take your dog to a vet because you don't know what you're doing, flat out. Uh, let's talk a little bit real quick about what happens if you go. What if you go first and your dog is still alive? Um, think about that. Because a lot of us go, well, my family will just take care of my dog. Are you sure? Are you positive about that? A lot of times they'll just say that because they're thinking, oh, it's not going to happen. You're going to be perfectly fine. You're only 30 years old. You'll live forever. But then that doesn't happen. So number one, can they even, even if they volunteer to take your dog, are they able? Do, are they capable of doing that? Do they have the money? Do they have the space? Do they have other dogs? Can you guarantee that there will be some sort of compatibility with the other dogs? Do they have the skill set to take care of your dog? Maybe they're a little person. Maybe the dog that you left behind is a 180-pound Great Dane. Yeah, most people actually assume that if you, know, if you have a spouse behind that they're also going to keep the dog that you have. But specifically in my case, say I were to go today, I have a Belgian Malinois that my wife has no intention of, of keeping or, or maintaining because it, it makes her life very difficult. So, um, and yeah. you don't blame her for that. No, no, not yeah, at all. You not want at all. Vesper to have a great life. Absolutely. So. And so I told her Brian would take him. Take her. Oh, yeah. <laughs> wait a second. <laughs> Thank wait you. just a Thank second. you very little. Uh, <laughs> yep, I got it. Don't worry about it. I can handle it all day, every day. Self-use euthanasia. Yep. <laughs> no, your dog's going with you, just so you know. Yeah. The, yeah, think about that. Can your spouse handle the dog? Now, also think about what is your spouse going through at that moment? Right. Yeah. And dogs, again, we've had episodes where we talked about how dogs mirror their owner's stress. Is this a good place for your dog to be? Really give this some thought. So can your spouse take care of the dog? Can your family take care of the dog? Do they have the money, have the space, have the knowledge, have the skill sets? Are they emotionally where they need to be to give your dog the best possible life it can have? Really think about that. Also think about putting your dog in your will. That's, Be, that was exactly what I was going to yes, ask. Is you, that what you should do? Yes. You need to put your dog in your will. You really do. Because here's what happens. If the dog is legally yours, for example, I own this dog before I marry you. Then I die. The dog is still legally my dog. Now, you can go into all sorts of joint custody, ownership, and probate, and so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, you may want your will exactly the way you want. What if you and your spouse die? Now, I don't need good old uncle stepping in saying, I'll take the dog. He do fine out on my farm. I'm sorry. He's a Morky and his name is Dave, aka chicken, and he will not do very well on your farm. Yeah, plan for the stuff, guys. There's nothing like having an exit strategy. We have to have it as humans. It just, I tell you, when it goes, it goes. And it sure is helpful when there's already mechanisms in place. This is where my dog will go. This is what will happen after that. You know, it just, for me personally, it helps me sleep a little bit better. Yeah. You just kind of know because it's inevitable. Yep. So create a will. And if you think about sending your dog to a rescue, talk to them beforehand. And again, make sure everything's clear. Make sure everything is in writing. And also know this. Update that will. Things change. Meaning, yeah, Joshua, I'll take Vesper today. 
But then two years from now, you pass away and Vesper is trying to kill everyone. Mm-hmm. So maybe I don't want Vesper. Or now. within that time frame, you've gotten a dog that Vesper and that Would dog eat. is not compatible. Yes. yes. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. So many things to think about. Uh, but anyway, I hope this helps you just a little bit on that subject. There is some, again, some, no one wants to talk about it, but you need to talk about it. Prepared exit strategy for your dog. Check off all the boxes. And then think about what you want to do with your dog if it goes before you. Guys, give that some thought. Really, really do. Give it a little bit of thought there because it certainly does help. I have a question as well. As far as, you know, we get a lot of um, questions when people just drop off for board and train programs. Is my dog going to miss me? So that's a big question. I'm sure those same types of people have for when, if you were to go before your dog, does your dog go through some level of coping? Is it just the fact that things aren't as familiar as they were, or is there an actual mourning process that dogs go through? Well, if they're celebrating, then there's your answer. But if they're not, uh, it all depends on a lot of it. So many factors. A, what was the attachment that they had to you? Some dogs have what we call SBA, secure-based attachments. It's going to be very difficult for them because you're not just someone that they loved. You're someone that they depended upon to stay alive on the planet Earth. So it does vary a lot, but dogs do typically grieve. Wolves grieve. They really do. These are hyper-social animals. And when they lose that, they don't know for sure that you're gone, that you died. Uh, We don't have any evidence to support that. You just went on a very long trip. It's typically the emotions of the people that are around the dog after you pass that now has the animal saying something's not right. Something is terribly wrong here. And therefore, give it a little bit of time. There's also medications you can give your dog during that time, just like they do to humans. A little Valium is dispensed, benzodiazepines, you name it, are given to help the person cope through that little period of time. Okay, guys, we can talk a little bit more about this when we come back. But right now, we're going to go ahead and take a short break. And we come back here. You've got questions, huh? I have a few questions. You yep. do. We've had some people writing in and wanting to find out a few answers to some problems that they're having with their dogs. So we'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Until then, go, go get something to drink. I am. And then come back, sit, stay. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you ready for a broad look at everything to do with the world of sports? If so, tune in to the Mike Abadir Show. It's a unique perspective to the connections between sports and business. 
Host Mike Abadir has negotiated numerous deals in the NFL. Along with co-host Gino Bacola, Mike will bring his expertise, discussion, and some terrific guests to the airwaves. Listen live for the Mike Abadir Show every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Taming the Wild and Your Dog. To reach the program today, send an email to Brian at TamingTheWild.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, just returning back from our break here after talking about what happens if my dog passes away? What do I do? What are we doing? And we're more or less focused on what I do with my dog. You know, again, as far as what happens to you, yeah, counseling, get family support, things that sort there. But now we're going to head into some questions because we've been getting inundated with some really good questions. Absolutely. So hit me, Carol. Okay. So we have one. She says, I have a new foster. It's a white German shepherd who is about a year and a half old. And she thinks he has confinement anxiety. Outside the crate, he is totally chilled and laid back. But in the crate, he stresses for hours, panting, whining, barking, licking, and scratching at the crate. He's broken out of wire crates. He's injured himself. So, But when she leaves the crate door open for him just to roam around, he'll go in the crate. He'll come out of the crate. No problems. He starts to panic when she closes the crate door, and she does not know what to do. Oh, boy. Okay, so there's many layers to this. Many layers. So it was one really long question, but this question had many questions all wrapped into one. First thing, well, you're probably going to hate me for this if you own a white German Shepherd, but hey, it's a white German Shepherd. I'm just going to be honest with you. I've been doing this for four decades, and it's a rare day. And I do mean very rare, maybe one in a hundred white German Shepherds I work with that doesn't have some sort of issue some sort of underlying issue. And a lot of that just comes with dealing the way we've been doing all these years of, you know, futzing around with genotypic type variations. This is how you get the all white. Mm -hmm. This is how you get the miniature dog. This is how you get the animal that points at its prey instead of chasing it with every atom in its body. That's how you get that. So when you go messing around uh, with mother nature's hen house, you know, she doesn't like foxes smelling around in her genetic hen house. But we've been doing it for decades and decades. And when you do that, you create issues. You create an animal who, from a genetic standpoint, is ill-equipped to deal with the dynamic stressors of this eco-niche. 
And again, I'm going to always point my finger back to genetics. So this thing has a lot of genetic components in it, many, many, many genetic components. One of those is uh, the fact that it is white. The other one is the fact that uh, from a genetic standpoint, it's maturation. A year to a year had an a half old dog. That's a little bit alarming. Most animals don't develop unusual fears, maladaptive fears, PTSD, until their brains had developed enough to understand exactly what it is. Case in point, I tell people all the time, two hemispheres, right side, left side. Left side, all the social things that come with being a social predator, all the predetermined, uh, standardized, ritualized behaviors that come with dog being a dog, dog with another dog, dog with a human, so on and so forth. Right side of the brain, among many functions, is the identification of friend or foe. The younger the mammal is, the more inaccurate their assessment is of friend or foe. Their ability to do so is hampered by the fact that they're so young. Why is it hampered? Why does it need to be sharper at a year, year and a half? Because at this point here, if you're a wolf, you are still with your pack, which means you're being protected by the mating pair. If you're a dog, you should be protected by the mating pair, your mother, your father. If you're a child, this would be the equivalent of maybe a 10-year-old child. You're supposed to be under the protective custody of your parents. So therefore, I don't need to be too worried about things at this age. Someone else has got that, taking that little lead for me, and you got it covered. Uh, I've never met a three-year-old afraid to get in a closet, but I've met a lot of 30-year-olds that won't climb in one. So again, it takes the development of the brain. So that's an issue. So we have a white German Shepherd. We have a year, year and a half old dog. And now we have confinement anxiety, which then points a finger back to the past. What occurred while this animal was young? What happened so traumatically that now it has left an indelible imprint on my brain? A flashback. Case in point, the dog is fine when it's in the kennel on its own. I make my own decision. I go in, but again, there's a way out. It's only when the door shuts that it now takes on the perception of a trap, which means you're worried that things are going to hurt you while you're in there. You're afraid. You can't evoke the flight option. You can't do it. You're stuck. Uh, so that there guarantee you that points, and this is a new dog. It's a foster, right? So yes. she just got yeah, it. It's a foster. So we don't have a lot of history to go by, especially in this question right here. So if you submitted this question, I would definitely like to have a little bit more background, but if you don't have any meaning, it just showed up at the animal shelter, showed up to the rescue and you brought it home. Well, you don't get to ask that question because you don't get to have an answer. And therefore, you can only go by what am I dealing with today because today will lead you back to the past. And But what will knowing that do for you? Well, quite a bit. First of all, case in point, I had a client whose dog was perfectly fine in her kennel. Perfectly fine. The dog was great. And every day, the dog would go in the kennel about 8 a.m. As, as she prepared to go to work. And the kennel was in her den with a big bay window so the dog could look out. Well, next thing you know, the house is broken into. The front door's kicked in. From that point on, that dog had been going in that kennel at 8 a.m., Monday through Friday, for four years, no problem. Right then, the door's kicked in, the house is ransacked, 
And that dog no longer would go back in that kennel. Whether the door's open or whether it's shut, you're getting that dog back into that kennel. Welcome to being a dog. They make what we call natural pairing. They perform natural pairing, and sometimes they pair with an event that had nothing to do with them. Uh, another little example of that, had a trainer one time, had a very long line attached to a six-month-old dog. He was telling the dog or teaching the dog to come when called. Right at the moment, the very first time he ever said, Sally, come, and gave a little tug on that long line to motivate the dog to come in his direction, boom, huge thunder, flash of lightning. It felt like the building actually got hit by the lightning. And when that occurred, from that moment forward, that dog, Sally, would have nothing to do with that trainer. (laughs) Nothing to do with him. He caused the boom. He caused the lightning. So in all of training, we understand that animals pair. We pair. Sometimes we drive their training and their responses and their pairing to what we intend. For example, I say sit. Well, you should pair the fact that when your butt hits the ground, I'm really happy with you. Uh, But outside of that, they will do their own pairing. Okay, so definitely there's some sort of event that occurred that create an experience, a terrifying experience for this dog. And now going forward, the shutting of the door is the trigger of that event. So now that means I have an animal whose stress response has been mobilized. Holy moly. And now when that happens, a couple of hallmarks of it. First of all, energy is now sent all throughout your, your dog's body. Heart rate is up. Oxygen is up. Eyes are dilated. And on top of that, my brain is going 1,000 miles an hour. How do I get out of here? How do I escape? And well, what, last time I, I just used my mouth and tore the darn thing up and I got out. So, of course, the dog's going to keep trying that again because that's the very first thing that's going to come back into your dog's brain. How the heck did I get out of this situation last time? So, now that's going on, which then means the animal's now immune to any sort of other input that you're giving it. You can tell it, no, stop it. Everything's going to be okay. It's not listening to you. It is hyper-focused on one thing, one thing only. When you're an elk and there's a wolf two feet off of your rear end, you're not thinking about the stock market or you're going to send your young little elk calves to, to day school or daycare. You're not giving that a thought. All you're thinking about is surviving that very moment. And that's what the stress response was for right then. So again, now I have a dog in there and just just following his breadcrumb trail back to genetics, white German shepherd. It had a terrifying event in a crate. Now it's in the crate with the door shut. That's a trigger. So now my stress response has been mobilized. Holy moly. You can put all the Kongs you want in there. You can put all the toys that you want inside there. When that door shuts, that is a forever trigger. So here's what has to be done. First of all, me knowing this, I am going to elicit chemical help. I really am. Uh, There's nothing wrong in that. I'm probably going to use a benzodiazepine. That's a panicolytic benzodiazepine designed for panic. So when that door shuts, we have an animal who's panicking. And what I want to do is simply take the edge off the panic. There's three emotional states that animals and humans have. My calm zone, my arousal zone, and my red zone. And again, you don't want to be anywhere near that red zone because when that thing happens, you don't care about anything but surviving. 
So that being said, these benzodiazepines were designed to keep humans, which then we use in mammals, trapped at about the midway of the arousal zone, which turns a panicked animal into a concerned animal. And a concerned animal now takes into account, hey, there might be other options. Instead of just tunneling my way out of here, maybe I'll just lay here. Maybe I'll just chew on this Kong and nibble on that for a little bit. So I'm definitely going to do that for a little while. And that's how I was able to get my client's dog, who was terrified of the crate after the house was broken into, to go back into the crate and be perfectly fine two months after the event occurred. We simply had to use a chemical to make sure the dog never got to that panicking state. You know, I wrote in my book, The Hammer, I used the example, if you have a man drowning in a pool, that is not a great time to now in, in try to, uh, the word I'm trying to use there is enhance his knowledge of Shakespeare's Hamlet. It's not a good time to introduce that. Dude's drowning. You at first have to pull him to the side, allowing him to gather his wit and his wind. And when he's done so sufficiently, maybe he'll be a little bit more receptive to Shakespeare's Hamlet. So again, I'm going to use medications so I can teach Hamlet to a dog who's afraid of being in that crate. Uh, and as far as going on walks, I don't care how tired he is. That's not going to solve the problem. Again, every animal, every human, no matter how stressed they are, they finally run out of energy and you have to sleep. So does it help a little bit? Eh, maybe from a level 10 to a 9.5, you still have a problem. This animal has to be desensitized to that crate. And the only way it sounds like, at least from what you've told me, Kara, mm -hmm. is we're going to have to use a little bit of pharmacotherapy to make that thing happen. Gotcha. Uh, and if you have any more questions about that, because it gets a lot deeper, but reach out to me, but we're definitely going to have to do that. Okay. I have one. Okay. Um, so tell me the difference between a puppy, like a puppy puppy, eight weeks, nine weeks, 10 weeks, whatever, fussing in their crate. And then this dog pitching an ever loving fit in his crate, because we tell people Put them somewhere you can't hear them. As long as they're safe, put the puppy somewhere you can't hear them, and they'll, they'll work it through. With a young puppy, if I'm separated from the pack, I'm dead. That is the intrinsic mechanism that guides that behavior, that causes the response of crying out. And that is an animal that is very stressed at that moment because in the wild, you don't cry out. Crying out reveals where you are. Now the other animal that could possibly be hunting you knows exactly where you are. You just announced that to the whole wide world. So that being said, the animal's only doing it because it feels I don't have any other option. If I don't, if I'm not rediscovered, I'll die. Kind of like going through the woods and you fall in the hole. You're gonna well, you can scream. be quiet about it. You can <laughs> suffer in silence for a little while, but a couple of days later, kind of need to start acting out a little bit there and hopefully that you'll be rediscovered and you can get out of the hole and be alive. So with puppies, the big difference is this. My instinct says, cry out. So I do cry out. But then there's cause and effect. So no animal hunts you, no animal eats you. And eventually, those things that put you in there, that caused you to be in that situation, those furless bipeds, they come back and let you out eventually, typically when you're quiet, when you've given up. Then that's called learning. Oh, I get it. So going in this thing doesn't kill me. 
I'm just going to be in here for a little while. And eventually, I'm let out. No different than, again, what happens at four o'clock in the afternoon in our house, our dogs start poking us, wanting to eat. These are animals who pick up on patterns. They learn by patterns. And you just present that pattern. However, fast forward to a year and a half old dog. Okay. Well, you've been on the plant for a year and a half. Has anything eaten you while you've been in your kennel? No. Maybe this dog's never even been in a kennel until she got it. And now all of a sudden, I'm in the kennel and I'm freaking out. Uh, and I'm bigger. Puppies can't really chew their way out of most crates. Big German shepherds can. Mm -hmm. And maybe I just gave that to good old college try and bingo, it worked like a champ and therefore I'm gone. And now all of a sudden I have to get stronger and stronger kennels to hold my animal in. But at the end of the day, if you're trying that hard to get out, if you're trying that hard, then you for sure, for sure have an issue because all dogs try, but they give up. You know, the neat thing about dogs, they only carry one suitcase with them into the future. It's called success. They don't drag around one called losing, failures. Only we humans do that. We're, that's very unique to us. And I also think it's, it's also important to say that what you, meant, you kind of touched on it, that most dogs give up very quickly. Because I've, I've ran into a lot of cases before where they think that the dog has separation anxiety because when they put it in the crate, the dog is, starts mouthing at the crate or whatever. And a lot of times that's just a dog with some grit. That's just a dog who's going, I want to see if I can't get myself out of here because that's what I prefer to do at this moment. But I want it my way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not always your dog is experiencing some sort of extreme anxiety or something. There are dogs that just, they want out at that moment, but eventually when it doesn't work, they're done. They go to sleep. Yeah. Yep, cause and effect. They learn from that. But one of the other things I cued off off the German Shepherd is panting mm, for yeah. hours. Now, again, that means that your sympathetic nervous system is causing your heart to pump quickly to provide oxygen. And if your, your adrenal glands are going to secrete glucose and your liver and your fat cells are going to secrete simple proteins and fats to create energy, well, you got to get it to wherever it needs to go, whether it be your legs or whether it be those fists for fight or flight. So I get it. Maybe you're panting for about the first 10 minutes. I gave it to good old college try, but by golly, this lady went out and bought one doozy of a kennel. <laughs> so therefore, the other thing about natural instinct with, with, with dogs and wolves is don't expend energy unless there's a payoff. So again, you're absolutely right. After about 10 minutes, most dogs go, okay, well, I'm in here. There's no internet to surf, no books to read, can't see the TV from here. So... I think I'll just take a nap. And there you have it. So again, this is a very, very deep issue. All right, Kara, we got time for some more. Let's okay. hit me a few more. Okay. So I'm teaching my dog to heal on a loose leash and she keeps forging ahead. I'm doing what my trainer said, step back and bring her back to me. But it is a constant struggle. And it would be. Joshua, we were talking about, we got this, okay, just so you know, we got this question just a little bit ahead of time because it came in right before the show. So tell them, tell them about what we were talking about with that. Well, this, I mean, you bring the dog back to you. Okay. The dog goes, okay, that's not necessarily what I wanted, but uh, I'll go ahead and go forward again. <laughs> There's no cost involved. No cost. And so when you say no cost, meaning no correction? Yeah, no correction, no punishment, whatever word you want to use. I don't care. Use it. Yeah. Yeah. It's just that it, the, the dog has to in some way so go, 
oh, I don't want to do that again. Probably shouldn't do that again. That didn't really work out for me. Yeah, and that's our job is to make that very clear. Again, all dogs learn through their own self-discovery. They learn through cause and effect. They do natural pairing. Our job is to make sure that they pair it with the signals that we give. They give the response that we want. That's our job. Let them learn that. So with every behavior, especially if you want something to occur reliably, you will always have to introduce a cost and a benefit. So what would be the cost of pulling the human? Okay, that could be a correction on the leash. By the way, if you do that, try to make sure that the correction occurs, the little snap on the leash, the little pull on the leash, jerk on the leash, use whatever word you wish, is across your body. These are horizontally built creatures. They're designed to go north and south. You pull back, you go with their power, you might as well be walking your dog to the gym because you're doing resistance training. So pull across your body. That goes against their power source. And it's be like me walking down the street and all of a sudden Kira's holding my hand and she yanks east or west and I'm headed north. Both of those would cause me to pause for a moment. That would be a little uncomfortable. And I would finally learn, hey, I think I need to maintain a relative position next to her to avoid that cost. And if I figure that out, and along the way, Kira also goes, good, Brian. Great for hanging out next to me. <laughs> and toss an it, <laughs> gives me an M&M or a Reese's cup or something. And hey, I, I'm sp- I'm, I'm your average Joe when it comes to learning things, and therefore, I'd finally pick it up, and I would elect to just walk next to the person. Now, if, if you've listened to us in the past, then you know what kind of equipment we use, but it doesn't specify in this question what equipment is being used. So, if you are leash popping, make sure you're not using a head halter, because I don't know what your trainer has suggested, but make sure you're not using a leash, or I mean, I'm sorry, a, a harness or a head halter of any type, because you're not going to get the job done there. Yeah, you, no matter how much you yank on the leash, it's just not going to work. Uh, absolutely. That's, that's what you need to do. Got it. Okay. So I have a great Dane who used to heal great on the leash. She just turned a year old in July. Now, when I take her for walks, she has to be walking right up against me, pushing into me as she walks. She knows to sit when I stop and has been so close to me. She's sitting with her front foot on my foot. <laughs> it makes me laugh because way back in the day when I would do dog sport competitions, yeah, everything from either AKC, shoots and ring sport, you name it. it. Anytime you're training an animal, you have to strive to make sure that you're paying attention and you're evoking out of them attention, motivation, and cognition. Cognition meaning can your brain, is it able to learn what it is I'm trying to teach? Has it matured enough? Is it developed enough? But attention and motivation, you're always trying to do something to gain that. Uh, one of those would be, hey, you need to pay attention to me. You need to sit when I come to a stop. You need to turn left when I turn left. You need to turn right when I turn right. In other words, you need to be aware of me, everything that I'm doing physically, and everything that I say to you. Well, a lot of times you have young animals, whether they be large Great Danes or small dogs, they want to check out the whole world. I want to, yeah, I, I'll walk next to you, Brian, but I want to check out that dog in that yard over there. And I want to look at that other dog coming in this direction and that skateboarder coming up from behind. 
Now, how do I do that without breaking the required walking position? Well, I just touch you. And by touching you, I know exactly where you are. I don't have to look at you at all. I can feel you. You're right by my rib cage over here. You're right there. Uh, we would have dogs by German Shepherds. I'd say, look at me. And they'd be in the sit next to me. And sure enough, their right paw would be on my left foot. It's almost <laughs> as though I don't have to look at you, but I know when you're leaving because I can feel when you leave. They're smart animals. So my first, my first assumption on this would be that we have an animal that has learned that little trick. Mm -hmm. Let me lean against a human. Let me walk against them. And now I can pay attention to everything but them. Now, on a more serious note, we could have what's called a developing SBA, Secure Base Attachment. And that means that maybe the walks have become a little bit scary. And because they become so scary, I'm just going to cling to you. Yep. Being near you keeps me safe. Strengthen numbers, kind of like a little girl hanging on to her mother's skirt. It is when the relationship between you and your dog has crossed the line, has gone from, hey, I dig you, to I have to have you. And, and those can become very severe. And the dog just turned a year in July. So, I mean, it's still a maturing mammal. I mean, it's not socially mature yet. So it's still needing some level of, of protection from, from somebody else. But the, the other point is that it's in July. I know that I have a dog who suffers from some level of, uh, of generalized anxiety. And I know in the month of July and even into August, she does not act the same because of fireworks and all the different things that happened in the months previous, she kind of holds on to that. So we may also be dealing with some sort of generalized anxiety as well. Yeah. And it could be created from the fact that maybe this animal wasn't socialized properly in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And now all of a sudden, wow, what's that that just went by me? It's called a Harley Davidson. What was that that just went by me? It's called a, a, uh, a leaf blower. They're, again, as they get older, first of all, when they're young, they really don't care. Look at children. Hey, we're going to get in this plane that's missing one engine, but don't worry about it. And they, and they don't worry about it. Okay. They care less. Give they just my, hop right on into the darn thing. Give me my iPad. I'm happy. They, <laughs> <laughs> iPad and my AirPods, and we're good to go. And so I'm, I'm happy, too. So when I they didn't have those devices, my kids were young. But I would have been very happy had they had those, especially on a plane. But as we get older, now all of a sudden the brain starts to expand. Band, which means the aperture on that little camera lens that can identify a threat. What can kill me? What can cause me harm? With each passing month, that camera lens opens and becomes wider and wider and wider. And preparation of the day that you will leave the protective custody of your parents and now start to protect your own offspring. So you bet all these things. We have a dog that's getting older, dog that's recognizing threats, possibly becoming a little bit anxious about walks in general because walks are scary. I'm not used to these things out here, or they used to be out here, but they, they didn't mean anything to me a couple months ago, but now they are starting to. So either way, this can go a couple of different ways. Uh, if the dog is leaning on you, it seems happy on its walk. It really does. It just kind of bounces around and leaning on you. Well, then the best thing that you can do with that is the second they lean, turn left. Turn left. Just turn left right through the dog. It's really funny because we, you know, this is obviously 
annoying her because she wrote into how, how to stop it. But it's funny that we use that same principle and sometimes in protection work just to make sure that the dog can keep eye on target, but also know where your movements go. It's, yep. it's interesting. Oh, in the military, we call it a tight 360 where you yeah. put your back against the back of the other guy. So you're looking out at your field of vision, look at the bad guys, and you know your buddy right behind you is doing the same thing. So you don't have to look over your shoulders. Again, there's uh, so many things, but if it is a joyful dog and the dog does not seem to be anxious and there's no other problems or cleanliness to you when you're at home, then I just recommend left turns, work on that heel. Hey, when the dog starts to link, turn left. And by doing that and also just even pushing the dog off of you and rewarding the dog when it has space between you uh, and it, the dog will soon learn. It will. It may take a little bit. You may have to get off those really narrow sidewalks and get into a field where you're uninhibited. You know, the dog leans, I turn left. The dog comes around the other side, I go right. Either way, you will have to dance with your dog. And that's what we call it, dancing with your dog. All right. I hope that helps. I think here we have time for one more we question. Have one more, yes. My neighbor and I are training our dogs for the CGC test. When she leaves her dog and goes out of sight, he whines and barks. Since she's not there to correct him, what should she do? All right. First of all, a couple of things to make sure any listener understands. What is a CGC? CGC is, is short for an acronym for canine good citizen. It means it's a test to evaluate, can your dog do some basic obedience commands, perform them and do them reliably? And the hopes of the AKC is that more people want to earn this title, which means in America, we have a very well-behaved dog society. So good for you, AKC, but that's what that is. Number two, when she says leaves her dog, we're not talking about stay and going out of sight. So it's not a test to determine can your dog do out of sight stay work. It's when you leave your dog with someone else. So a stranger grabs your dog, holds on to it, and you leave. And then the dog has to do well and not do what her dog's doing, in other words. Um, wow, this kind of harks back to the possible SBA. Yeah. And uh, that's been the theme today. Yes. Yeah. So I do I have a question. Now mm-hmm. this is a conditioned behavior in my own dog, but it's it doesn't resort to the SBA. So I'm wondering if you could you could say that maybe she's dealing with a similar situation since we've already kind of covered the SBA option. So uh, my Belgian Malinois that we've talked about earlier, Vesper, because of the type of work that I've done with her in the past, which I won't go into detail, she can see me from a distance but being held by somebody else and will lose her mind because she thinks that I'm about to run off and hide and she's going to go come find me. Mm-hmm. Now, that can be shut off with obedience. Now, I'm not saying that this person has done that same exact type of training, but through the relationship of training and doing come and called work, the dog could be under the impression that I'm supposed to follow you. This person's holding me back and I'm trying to do right by coming and finding you or coming with you. And I wasn't really being told the proper command to sit and stay or anything like that. So that's a potential possibility. Yeah. A lot of assumptions here. One thing for sure, again, if we're dealing with a normalized dog, then this could be the only time that this occurs. Yeah. Meaning, have you left your dog with someone else before and walked away from it? Did you do that outside of the training arena? Right, right. Because dogs, again, they know when they're in training and they know when they're not. I would tell you to practice this 
outside of obedience. I mean, you just go to a cafe, maybe you plan to meet a couple of friends there and you say, here, hold my dog, I'm going to the bathroom. Uh, I would do this a lot. Uh, every time I got the opportunity, do this. And while you're gone, these people can pet your dog, they can offer a treat. Just desensitize the fact that you're leaving this scary that you don't always get to go and that you'll learn through your own self-discovery, kind of like the dog in a crate, that you come back. And then while you're gone, make it as pleasant as possible. But that's what I would do. And I think that you can definitely get past it by, by doing that. I, I just have a feeling that sometimes when we see, what does the test require? Oh, it requires that step where someone has to hold my dog and I have to leave. Well, let me do that a couple of times. Oh, okay. Well, here's the problem. Dog knows that. So again, practice this outside of the training realm and all sorts of conditions in which the dog cannot predict that that's about to occur. Mm -hmm. Because again, in the training arena, they do. Okay, guys, we're getting ready to shut down the show for this week. Uh, if you have any questions, send them in to us, Brian with the Y at TamingTheWild.com. Hop on our website, use our contact page, you name it. Uh, that's how you reach us. If you get an opportunity, also hop on the website. I've got a couple of links to talk about burying your dog in your yard and what's best to do with your dog if it does pass away before you do. And take advantage of those. And guys, got any last words before we head out of here? Nope. nope. I think we no, covered it all. Good. We're good. We got it. Okay, guys, we look forward to seeing you next week. We've got another topic we'll go over, and then we have, I'm sure, a lot more, more questions, questions to cover. All yes. right. You guys have a safe week, and I hope that wherever you are, it's nice and cool because it is not here. <laughs> <laughs> so this isn't a misery less company. I hope you get the same thing. All right. Have a great week. Thanks for tuning in this week. Please join host Brian Bailey again for another edition of Taming the Wild and Your Dog next Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Your dog's welfare and your life may depend on it.